Blog Talk Radio. Writers Show is now in the air, spotlighted on BadRedheadMedia.com as a top author podcast on the web today and called a total blast of a show for writers. My name is Robert Batista, and you may ask, why is the Funky Writers Show so terrific? Because I'm a writer, just like my guests, and know that words are the breath of life. Connect with the show on the exciting Twitter page by going to at the funky writer evil from my point of view has always been within the actions of humans the devil I have always perceived to be a trickster with more sinister and dangerous connotations than the world's the words suggest but one of his greatest tricks I have always been taught is that lie that he doesn't exist. These are the cerebral words of today's special guest, Cheryl Diane Parkinson. Welcome to the Funky Writer Show, Cheryl Diane Parkinson. Hello there. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? (laughs) Great. Now that you're on, I, I feel very blessed to have you on the show. Cheryl, currently You are both teacher and student, also a mother and writer, all-around energetic vibrancy. What drives you to maintain your pace at such a frenetic level? Well, I think um, when you look at my life, actually, it is rather complex, and it is difficult, and, and people have asked me that before, how do I manage to do absolutely everything? And I think when you have to, as many single mothers know, when you have to do something, there isn't really a choice. You just do it. And so when it comes to being a mother, you know, I love being a mother, and I am a single mother, and it's, it wasn't a choice. It was something that happened in my life, so it's not something that you can change. So I mother to the best that I can. I do work full-time. I am a teacher, and I absolutely love my job, and I would do the best that I can for the children that I teach as well. So that's, that's another job you can't do by half. And I am also a writer. Again, it's not something that I chose to do. It is something that is part of who I am. And so, you know, I've always written, I'm sure I'll write until the day I die. But it is just something that, because you enjoy it so much, I find time to do it. As a writer, what issues are you concerned with within your breadth of writing? I think um, I write 
there's two types of writing that I do. I, I write for children. So I, I have um, some stories that I centre around a, a child called Bee Wild that I initially wrote for my daughter, Jessica. And I also write poetry as well. But I am concerned with the issue of identity, especially the back British identity. And it's involved in, with the PhD that I'm doing as well. And so um, when I think about my own identity, that's something that comes out within my writing because there are several issues there that I just have to write about. You know, I think as a writer, I write because I have to. And so there are things that come across my life that I need to kind of express and, and put to paper. And that come, is where identity comes in, because as a black British person, I think my identity is in flux. This, this, this hybrid identity that I have that I do write about, because it is in writing about it that I do find some kind of peace. So let's talk about your early writings. You said writing is you and you are writing. What were some of your early early writings about? Were they poetry, prose? What were they? I remember uh, writing about poetry when I was about probably seven or eight years old. And my mother told me to get a to book it and write it all and keep it in all, book, in all the book. And I used to write poetry then, and I used to illustrate it, and I used to put it all in the book, and I used to keep it, and every now and then I'd write, you know, spring poems and winter poems and Christmas poems. And as I got older, I started writing short stories. I remember when I was a teenager, the first kind of serious uh, writing I did was a short story, uh, science fiction, I think, and my main character was a girl called La Negro, which was actually Cheryl spelt backwards. <laughs> and, so, and that was a story. <laughs> that I remembered writing and that one I entered for a competition and that's when I started um, writing and putting my writing out there when I was about um, 16, 17. In your synopsis of your upcoming novel whose working title is Too Many Birthers, you write, they, might, they, myself included, exist within this hybrid world of belonging to two cultures, yet fully belonging to none, almost like dual personalities. Can you explain why you're presenting being black British to having a mental disorder? Yeah, I am, I'm West Indian, but I'm British. So I was born here in, in London. But my family, my mother was born in Jamaica, and she came here when she was eight. And my father was born in Jamaica, but he came here just after the Windrush. So even though I was born here and I see myself as British, I have West Indian parentage. But when I go to Jamaica, I'm the English girl. I'm, and I did actually spend some time in Jamaica. I, we lived there for a couple of years. And I was the kid at school that was always picked on because I was English. I was the kid who was, um, had tricks played on because I was gullible, because I didn't understand how things worked. I was the English kid. And then in England, you're sitting at a bus stop and somebody will say to you, well, what country are you from then? I will say, I'm English. I was born here. They say, oh, no, but, you know, what country are you born from? Where are you from? And there's this concept that because you're black, you're not English, or because you're not white, you can't be British. And so you have this hybridity going on. You know, you are always from that other place. And so when I think about the kind of person that I am, you put on faces, you put on uh, personas, and it's because I think of this, this fractured persona you have from colonialism, from slavery days, because the mind was fractured by that. You know, slavery was, what, three, four hundred years. 
and the, the mind has been damaged. And we have this, this, we don't belong here, but we don't belong here, and, but we're living in this environment. So you're belonging to both places, but you don't fully belong to any. And so within this book that I wrote, it's called uh, Too Many Birthers, and it's a direct link to the birther from um, uh, The Mad Woman in the Attic. I think it was an Austin book. And so I've got, there's this idea that there is a madness that lies within black people, especially in, in, in London. If you look at the mental hospitals, they're largely full of black people. It does make you ask why. And I do think it's because of this, um, you're pushed out of society. There's this marginalization that occurs. And because of this mental fracturing you're having, you're, you're struggling to cope with the realities of day-to-day life. And so you do inevitably get some of these people ending up in mental hospitals. So this book that I've written, Too Many Birthers, what I actually do is I use a technique of magical realism to present this mental illness. And so my character has disassociative identity disorder, which is kind of like the modern-day version of, or the, the name, it's multiple personality disorder. That is what we know it for. So my character is literally displaying these different personalities. And in this story, she actually vanishes to a no-man's land, which I call it. And it is this place where you exist, this, this middle place where people like me exist because we don't belong to either. And so, therefore, we kind of belong to none. So you've got this middle place of not belonging. And so I, in this book, I've made this middle place a physical manifestation. So when she slips in and out of, of her personalities, the main character, she goes to this other place, which I have given a physical manifestation. So you can see what it is. And actually, I'm going to um, turn racism and prejudice into a physical beast which does actually try and hunt her down, and it does threaten her existence. Because in the real world, racism and prejudice, it does threaten your existence, and it does threaten your, your mental state and how you can cope with that. Because it is wearing, it really does grate on your nerves. And, it, and it's me kind of coming up against this day in, day out, that I just, you know, it, it, I just can't stand. And that is why I write about it, because it's an outlet. And it's only, that's the only time I find peace when I'm writing about all of these issues that are constantly wearing me down throughout life. And that, that's what this Too Many Birthers, the story, ultimately is about. Very, very, very intriguing and, and interesting. And, uh, boy, did you explain it very well, and I understand you completely. Um, it also seems like the idea and concept of too many birthers has been embedded, Cheryl, in your mind and psyche for a while before you actually started writing the story. Where did the seeds for this novel germinate? At one point did you said, I have to write a book about this? Well, I think it was um, actually 2010, and I wrote a book called The Beautiful Death, and there my character... Um, she was a person who kind of literally woke up in a different world where everything is upside down, topsy-turvy. And so within this world, she is seen as an alien and she is seen as someone different and someone who doesn't belong. And they are trying to convince her that she has a disability when she knows that she does not. 
And so within this book, she goes on a journey and she finds out the truth. And in actual fact, she leaves that world and she goes back to the original world and she finds that she doesn't belong there either. And she has another character that I've called Eve, who actually manages to make this transgression as well. And she follows her into this other world and she dogs her step. And even though that my character is presented as a good character, she transforms into um, quite an evil character that I've called Legion, who does have this multiple personality um, aspect to her. And that's the book that I wrote called um, The Beautiful Death, and I have actually submitted that for publication to uh, Meerkat Press, so that's, that's being considered right now. But that's where the ideas started coming from to construct in this book Too Many Birthers. Whereas one is definitely within the fantastical realm because it's all about, you know, I, I use uh, magic and, and um, all sorts of things that belong to the fantastic in that book. Whereas this one, it's set in the real world, but I use a technique of magical realism. And there's a fine line between magical realism and fantasy, which I'm finding that out as I am writing. But it does have this magical element because how else can you present the kind of life that I would live, it's not tangible. How can you describe something that's not tangible? You have to use something like magical realism or even fantasy. Otherwise, that you know, they're such difficult concepts to pin down that, you know, through magical realism, you can, you can show its manifestation. And it's, then it's much easier to kind of read and understand and much easier for me to explain as well because it's a feeling very difficult to put feelings into a book and make your reader feel what you feel but with this magical realism and with the techniques that i'm using then the reader should be able to see exactly what i feel and they should be able to feel it through my character that is the aim you i know lived through too many births you experienced it you've you've been through it but was there any research that you had to do, or are you doing any research also for the book? Um, what, if any, were some of the challenges you encountered while doing any of this research? Uh, yes, I am doing some research. I've read um, V.S. Nepal, which is stuffed with magical realism. Uh, I love Toni Morrison, and I like what she does with her book, Jazz, and I'm kind of trying to simulate something similar where she kind of, um, she shows three separate generations, and these separate generations come together in one story. So in my book, Too Many Birthers, I'm actually showing how mental illness is, you know, treated within different environments. So I go back, and I go back, so I'm looking at three separate generations, and I'm molding these stories into one and showing the different realities and how mental health is, is regarded within the British society, but also because I go back to the West Indian world. So um, that is really quite interesting to see how Tony Morrison did something like that. She does something called doubling, which I quite like as well, which I'm, I'm doing something similar because my character Sally, she has a double, which is effectively the other personality, is called Claire. The, the issue that I'm dealing with now is that um, describing this manifestation of this other land and um, my character is going to get raped. And that is something that I'm, I'm, I'm looking at um, exploring and how I, can, how I can put that across, because that's a tricky subject. 
And I think that will be very difficult for me to, to explain and describe and make it real. And so what I am doing is I am kind of researching and exploring around rape. So um, my character does get raped, and the child that she has is the child with, with the dissociative identity disorder. So right now my biggest challenge is how to explore this idea of rape and how to present it in a realistic way. I love the title, as you spoke of, um, and you said it was based on a Jane Austen tale, uh, Bertha in the Attic or something similar. Um, is this going to be the title? You're working with it? Um, talk to me more about the actual title of Too Many Berthas. Well, I think um, the book is Jane Eyre by Austen. Or Jane Eyre, okay. Yes, and the character... Bertha is Mr. Rochester's wife that she, he keeps locked up in the attic. Right, And right. she's kind of like a, a subtext within the book. And I think um, somebody else the wrote one a book that about sets the, the fire, story. correct? Yes. Right, and right. I think um, there was a book written about her, The Wide Sargasso Sea. And this, this idea that madness is locked away and it's not looked at and it's not dealt with, especially, I think... Um, in the West Indian community, we tend to hide from certain things, and this is one of the things I'm looking at that perhaps, possibly, we hide from, because it's not, you know, when you look at how mental illness is treated, it's not treated the same way as if, you know, you've had a broken leg or, or you know, another illness. Mental illness is something that's that's treated with shame, and it's locked away and it's hidden, and they lock the door and nobody speaks about it. And so I like this idea where Bertha was locked away and hidden from view. And it's too many Berthas because there is too many black people that are in these mental institutions. And no one's really looking at why. No one's looking at why they're full of black people. And so, you know, I like this title. And I do want to go with this, this title. But it is, you know, I'm, I've got another couple of years before I finish my PhD. I think it's three years. So I could quite possibly change my mind. But right now, I do like too many Berthas because there are too many of us in these institutions. Well, it works for me, Cheryl, I tell you that much. So, Cheryl, you have graciously agreed to read a short piece for us. Can you do this and set up the piece before you read it? Yes. Well, uh, this is a piece that I wrote for a prologue for The Beautiful Death. And um, it does have a religious element to it because I think, you know, when it comes to West Indians especially, especially in my family, we are quite religious, especially my mother. You know, she only watches God Channel on TV. <laughs> nothing else apart from that <laughs> and the news. <laughs> God Channel and the news. <laughs> so we are quite religious. And it encompasses every, every, you know, all parts of your life. And so when you have a life that is difficult, you do lean on your religion. You use it as a crutch to help you, you know, right. function in the world. Right. And that's what, you know, this, this poem is about. Okay? Yes, go ahead. Okay. And verily I say unto thee, keep thy sturdy feet upon the dark, rich, ruby-stained soil that I have laid out before you, that golden path. For though you are battered and blinded, your faith will lead you home. You are not wretched and rootless, but unfettered and free. Though you experience pain, compassion is conveyed. Though you experience the emptiness, your heart is infused with warmth. 
Though you were despised and disregarded, you appreciate and accept. For encompassed within the blinding black is my treasure within. My light shines forth in the deepest despair. The flame flickers forward. For you were ordained to be free. Free from restrictions and restraints, from confinement and limitation. This is my revelation. You cannot see the path before you, but you must feel your way through faith. But do not be deceived. There are many pitfalls along the way. But remember, every trip and stumble, there is gold. Find it. Make it worthwhile and learn. For you cannot see the end of all things. You cannot see the twists and turns in the completeness of your journey. For that is not for you. What you have to do is navigate through the dark. Trust that every trip, fall, snag and tear has been thought about, planned and prepared so you prosper. For nothing worth having comes free and you must ever lie crooked and cut straight. And so verily I say unto thee, keep thy sturdy feet upon the dark, rich, ruby-stained soil that I have laid out before you. For not many see that it is a golden path that will lead you home where you shall be given wings. Wow, that was awesome. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. Thank you. Um, let's talk about Cheryl Diane Parkinson, the person. Where did you grow up specifically, and what was your childhood like? You said it was basically religious. I know there was religion involved, but talk to me about your childhood. Um, I was born in Plastone, East London. And I went to an all-girl Catholic secondary school, which I think shaped me for who I am. Because the one thing that I liked about that school is they empower you as a woman. And um, they, make, they give you the confidence to go out into the world and just do what you have to do. Uh, my mother is a very strong person. My mother is the foundation of everything I do. She's, she managed with four of us on, our, on her own. She came to this country when she was eight without her mother. She came with her father. She is the strongest person that I know. And she taught me everything that I do now, everything that, that I am. I learned from her, as you know, lots of West Indians say, the apple don't fall far from the tree. I'm right. very similar to my mother. And I think um, even now when I struggle in my life, you know, and, and I've, I've exhausted every avenue that I can find to solve certain problems. My mother, I call her the magician, she pulls the rabbit out the hat and she comes in the last minute and she solves everything. And I still, I mean, I'm nearly 40, I have no idea how she does it. And she has always done that throughout my whole life, my whole life. And I think, you know, growing up around her and seeing her, I used to sit and watch her work two jobs. I used to see it, watch her go to work. She used to work night duty. She's a nurse. And she worked so hard, and she did the best for all four of us. And I think growing up, you know, and I, I saw that work ethic, and I think that is, that is what I have. She used to send right. us. She never used to come. She used to send us to church. And so all of us used to walk to church and come home every single Sunday. And, you know, at times I never used to like it, but I understand now as an adult why she did that. And so I did have quite a, I had a happy childhood, especially with my brothers and sisters and I getting up to all sorts of mischief. We did spend some time in Jamaica as well, where right. we uh, ran havoc. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, Cheryl, is that I grew up in Brooklyn, 
And what a large, gigantic Jamaican population uh, was in Brooklyn, or and is still now in Brooklyn. And um, it's amazing how your parents chose to go to the U.K., uh, and I wonder how it would have worked out if they followed the other Jamaicans to, to mm-hmm. the States and to New York. And, you know, it's it's funny how things work out. But what were, Cheryl, some of the books and authors that inspired you in your youth? I know you mentioned, you know, the Brontes, Jane Eyre. Uh, what else? Um, you know, I, I always loved Robin Hobb which is actually fantasy. And I love the, the most, uh, the trilogy that she did, um, the Farseer trilogy and um, The Soldier's Son. I loved reading fantasy, science fiction. I also went through an episode of reading lots of John Saul, which is quite scary stuff. I did have Stephen King's The It. I think it was It. I got that yes. for a Christmas present when I was about 15. <laughs> but I could never. I still have it sitting on my shelf. I couldn't. I couldn't read that one. It's way too I'm scary. Telling you. I'm a bit of a chicken when it comes to horror. <laughs> but I couldn't. I couldn't read that, and I still have that downstairs, you know, in my living room as a book that I will read one day. But I'm not just. I'm not quite ready for it yet. I. I, I loved Roald Dahl. You can Dahl. see the movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not too good with horror movies either. <laughs> but I, I, I'm a massive fan of Tolkien and Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Right. I absolutely love those. Yeah, and I've, I started reading them when I was ten, actually, The Hobbit, and I've read it all my life. I've reread it so many times, actually, and I love the films too, <laughs> especially The Dragon. The dragon is very cool. <laughs> Cheryl, I'd like to talk about another hat that you wear, that of teacher. Where yeah. do you teach, and what stories can you briefly talk about teaching in your teaching environment? I teach um, at St. Bonaventure School in East London. It's an all-boys school, a Catholic school, and I've, I've not been there long. It's a year this September, so I teach GCSE and A-level English language and literature. And, you know, I absolutely love it. I, absolutely, I do love teaching. I'm very lucky. I'm one of those people who get up in the morning, and I don't dread going to work right uh, I have had jobs as a teacher which you know has been difficult for example when I was a newly qualified teacher actually one of the reasons why I write this one the struggles that I have as a black person actually especially as a teacher I was working in Hertfordshire which is just outside London and it was a predominantly white school and I think we were teaching poems from other cultures, so it's part of the national curriculum, part of the syllabus. And we were teaching the book To Kill a Mockingbird. And um, poems from other cultures, I was teaching Pakistani poetry, African poetry, and West Indian poetry. And what happened was, my year 10s, they actually put a petition against me, and they did not want to be taught by a black teacher. Which wow. was incredibly hurtful. And it did actually, as a teacher, it, it, that's something that's, that's followed me because I was a new teacher. And in actual fact, it wasn't that long ago. It was something like nine, ten years ago. And so at the time, I did complain about it and stuff, and, and it was looked at. And nothing happened. And this is what got me really very cross. Nothing happened. And in, in fact, the only thing that happened was that I continued to teach them. 
And so I think they saw it as not giving the children the satisfaction of giving them attention to what they did. But in actual fact, what it appeared to was me to me was that their punishment was having me teach them. And the head of English actually did say to me at the time, well, you have to admire them. They've done very well to come together all by themselves like this to, get, to bring something like this together. And I was gobsmacked. What? Absolutely gobsmacked. They were praising wow. the children for coming together and right. producing a petition and organizing it. And so nothing happened, and I had to continue to teach them. And the reason why I didn't take it any further was because um, I was a new teacher, and my whole career was resting upon a reference that they would give me. And so I was worried that if I made too much of a fuss about it, it would affect the reference, which would affect my qualification, which would affect my whole teaching career. And I was Mm. just at the last hurdle of my teaching career. So that was... um, that was very hurtful and something that has followed me my whole teach. I mean, I, I can't stand anything to do with racism or prejudice or anything like that. You know, like my, my children are dual heritage. So my ex-husband is, is white Chinese. And so I think as a mixed couple, we have experienced racism from everybody. You know, we've been in the supermarket and we've had people calling my husband a chinky. We've been walking down the street and had young black boys shouting about how my son's skin is too white. And I've had black people calling me a coconut. That's the worst thing when racism comes from your own. Because when it comes from someone else, it's hurtful, yes. But, you know, you deal with it in a way, not that you expect it, but you deal with it. You don't expect it to come from your own. Not at all. And I think for me, when... um, it's centered at my children. That's what gets me, that's what gets under my skin. I think I had right. one instance that um, somebody called my son a chinky, and I was so angry, I chased him down the street, and I forgot about my daughter in the car. It was a baby at the time, and someone else, a friend, stood with my, my child, where I chased his kids down the road and gave him a piece of my mind. Because wow. it's one thing, racially abusing me, it's quite another, <laughs> racially abusing my children. <laughs> yes. Yes. And you know, this piggybacks onto my next question. I understand you wrote an article on racism within our schools that was published in the National Union of Teachers newsletter, March 2012. How was that article received? What feedback did you get? Um, I got quite positive feedback for that, actually. I think um, initially, the um, National Union of Teachers, they, uh, the magazine, they asked me to write an article about um, the Black Teachers Association organization and why it was important to go. And so um, I wrote about my experience. Now, what, at the time, my son was uh, 11, going 12, so we were looking for a secondary school for him. And I went to a local secondary school, a local Catholic secondary school that was very good and had a very good reputation. So I went on their open day, and on their open day, I saw a huge sign in the history room, the good side of slavery. And I couldn't, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And so I, I, you know, I stopped because I didn't want to start getting angry and embarrass my son. <laughs> so I stopped, and I, I, I waited, and I looked, and no one else seemed to realize that this was wrong. So I went up to the, to the display, and I read it, and there were articles about how black people like to sing and they like going to church and, and all these things about how, you know, making it look as though slavery wasn't bad. And I'm thinking, are you serious? 
And so one of the little girls who was showing me around the school, it's a little black girl, and I said to her, what, what's this, does this happen often? What's this all about? And she said to me, yes, it does. And she said they do have sometimes pictures of black people on the wall and displays, you know, not very positive images. I said, does your mother know? She said, no. I said, you ought to go home and tell your mother. I said, because if you were my child, I'd be furious. And this is the stuff that gets me angry. So I wrote a, a very detailed email to the head, and I asked for an appointment to see her, because that can't be going on, and no one's saying anything. And she didn't reply. And I sent it again, and she ignored me. And I called the school secretary and tried to get an appointment with her, and she ignored me. So mm. I contacted the Black Teachers Association, and I went to their meeting, and I spoke to them about it. And they told me what I needed to do to get, to, you know, to kind of bring this situation, make her see me. And so I contacted the relevant bodies, and they forced her to see me. So she replied to my email, and she set up a meeting. Now, I was told that she was worried about coming across an angry black woman. No, there's this idea that people are, you know, black people are angry. And yes, we are angry. It's because these things come day in, day out, day in, day out, and it makes you angry. But I'm not really a person that shouts and swears and gets angry with people. I don't do that. Right. I'm actually quite shy. I would never say, you know, say anything overtly to anybody. So I went to see her, and I think she was pleasantly surprised. And I did actually talk to her about it. And she, she brought out the, the scheme of work, and we discussed why it wasn't wrong, and why it was wrong, sorry. And uh, we discussed my name, Parkinson. And she said, you know, I said to her, well, that's not my name. And she said, well, what do you mean it's not your name? I said, it's a slave name. She goes, well, what is your name? I said, that's the $64,000 question. Right. I don't have a name. I don't have a language. And then hmm. I think the penny dropped. Because she, all she was doing was defending the teacher. Apparently, they were, they were teaching them how to write um, argumentatively. I said, but you're, this is an open day. You're putting your best foot forward. That's not putting your best foot forward, the good side of slavery. I said, that just looks like you advocate slavery. And if you do that with slavery, how do you teach Holocaust? How am I going to, ha- you know, what about the German kids in your class? How do you present Hitler? And so she did say, but he's a very nice man. I said, but that's not in... That's not for debate here. I said, you can damage children if you don't teach these sensitive subjects properly. And so she did say to me, are you still going to send your son here? And I didn't have the heart to tell her no, so I said, I will think about it. But of course, no. <laughs> I had no intention of sending my son there because it would be a risk. I'm not sending my dual heritage son into an environment which I do not have 100% faith that they're going to teach him well. Right. So I didn't send my son there. But that article that I wrote, it did receive a lot of positive feedback, and it let people know that actually you do need to stand up for yourself, but there are ways to do it. You don't go shouting and swearing at people because that doesn't get you anywhere. All that does is feed into stereotype that you are angry and aggressive, and we have enough stereotypes around black people as it is. And it may make things worse also. Yes, it makes things worse. You don't get what you need. Uh Uh-huh. So... Let's switch gears, Cheryl, and talk social media. I know you're on Twitter and Facebook and the like. Of all the social media platforms, which one do you feel is the most beneficial for your brand, and which, in your estimation, is the best for authors? Or does each 
platform offer its own special compensations? Each platform does offer something unique. I mean, I'm on WordPress, which allows me to write as much as I want. And then I'm also on Twitter. So Twitter enables me to advertise my WordPress page. And right. the thing I like about Twitter is it does actually put you in touch with people from all over the world that you wouldn't necessarily come in touch with. I mean, I wouldn't get in touch with, for example, the funky writer on WordPress. That arena has come from, all of this has come from Twitter. You know, my, right. the interviews that I've had with um, Deporch, an, an online magazine, has come via Twitter. Right. And so for me, promoting myself as a writer, a lot of it comes from Twitter. But through Twitter, people can access my writing through WordPress. And then, of course, on Facebook as well. Because Facebook allows me to put images on. And I do paint and draw as well. And so, oh. you know, I am an amateur painter and drawer, but I like paint and drawing. Nice. And I put these things on Facebook. Yeah, Twitter is such a great gateway to, to everything else. Um, I, I love it. Um, so, Cheryl, what is it? about your everyday life being black British that you find difficult? Uh, I think it's people's perception of who I am. People don't, racism still exists, but they're not so overt with it. For example, just today, I went to town with my daughter, Jessica, and um, I bought something in the shop, and I needed some change. And the the person just dropped the change on the desk, and wouldn't put it on my, in my hand. And you just you just know, you just know, what it is. Last week, I went into a, a nail shop, and I was asking for directions for somewhere else. And um, I asked the person at the front, you know, where this other shop was that I was looking for. Would you believe they wouldn't speak to me? They wouldn't speak to me at all. It was actually the person that she was, the girl's nails that she was doing, the customer who answered me and told me where I needed to go. And it's little things like that that get right. under your skin that drive yes. you insane. I remember taking my daughter to um, nursery when she was little. I mean, she's seven now, my youngest child, so this is a few years ago. And I dropped her off. And as I walked out, I saw another parent and I said good morning to them, and the look that I got was was shocking. You know, no one says anything, but you can. It's written on their faces. You can see it. Now, not everyone is like this. Not everyone is like this. But when it happens, it does make you think. Oh, and it does hurt. And I'm not the kind of person that knows exactly what to say right in that instant. I was sitting old brood, and I was sitting right. think about it. And then the next right. day I said, oh, I should have said this and I should have said that. <laughs> but I never said anything at that time. But then I don't, think, I don't think I should because I'm not one to argue with people either. Right. And I, exactly. I, just, I, I like doing it as a teacher. I have come across racist children as a teacher. And I, show, I like to show them who I am rather than tell them. And in the end, they say, oh, but you're okay. And that's the start. You're okay for a black person. And that's the start of kind of pulling apart their racist attitude because they get when as children they get it from their parents they're just children they're still formulating an opinion so when they meet one black person who doesn't fit their stereotype then they say oh but you're different so you know that it's not racism it's prejudice 
And that's the beginning of dismantling it. In closing, I have a very pertinent question I feel I have to ask you. (laughs) What (laughs) What is the most important thing, and you mention your children so much, what is the most important thing you are trying to teach them, your children? I'm trying to teach them to be happy because happiness, you know, it's not having a perfect life. It's a state of mind, and I'm trying to give them a voice. So I listen to them, and I try and compromise where I can to show them that they do have power over their lives, and I try to teach them to be happy. Because if they're waiting for a perfect life to be happy, then they're never going to be happy because life is not perfect. As soon as you get over one hurdle, another one comes. And my sister said something to me about Nelson Mandela. said, you know, when you get over the mountain and you finally reach the top and you survey the landscape, you see that there's many, many, many more mountains ahead of you. They will always have problems that they've got to climb over. But they need to be happy in their everyday life. And that is what I'm trying to teach them because I think I'm quite a happy individual. You know, I love my job and, you know, I love my lifestyle. I love being a mother. I love being a teacher. I love being a writer. I like where I am right now and I've liked where I am for quite a long time. And I'm trying to show them that if there is something in their life that they don't like, change it. You know, they are the driver in the seat that is their life. I even say it to the boys at school all the time. You are the driver in the seat of the car that is your life. If you don't like where you're going, you change it. Because if you don't change it, it's not going to change. <laughs> and then you won't be happy. Words to live by. So, Cheryl, how can people follow you, contact you, get to know more about you? Give out any contact information you'd like. I am on WordPress, uh, www.wordpress.com. You can just Google me, Cheryl Diane Parkinson. I also have um, a Facebook page, Cosmo Plum, and I'm on Twitter for Cosmo Plum as well. This has been the Funky Writer Show with me, Robert Batista. I'm at at author R. Batista on Twitter. Look for my free short stories, Carmela's Dream and My Baby Has No Name on Smashwords.com. My guest has been a woman who is a beacon of light and has my utmost respect, Ms. Cheryl Diane Parkinson. If you want her brilliant mind and you want to get into her brilliant mind, go to cosmoplum.wordpress.com and read her piece called Thank You for Letting Me In, X-Men Apocalypse, The God Element, and Feast Your Soul. Thank you so much, Cheryl, for being a guest on the Funky Writer Show. Bye now. Thank you.